This is Radio Health Journal. I'm Reed Pence. This week, what makes a nasty neighbor, a conniving co-worker, or a sexual harasser? Child bullies grow up into adult bullies, and particularly if it's effective for them. If a bully is successful in getting what he or she wants, then they'll persist into adulthood. All that and more when Radio Health Journal returns. I'm Nancy Benson, host of Radio Health Journal. If you enjoy listening to Radio Health Journal, you'll also like our sister show, Viewpoints, which covers a wide array of topics from education to history to the environment. Here's a preview of what they're covering this week on Viewpoints. Top Dog Foundation is setting a whole new example on how to treat senior dogs, how to value senior life. One organization's efforts to save older dogs and help pet owners plan ahead. Then... I would hope he would still be alive, (laughs) you know. What happens when the bully you wished would go away actually did? I'm Marty Peterson. And I'm Gary Price. These stories in-depth this week on your public affairs magazine, Viewpoints. Listen to Viewpoints on your favorite radio station and subscribe and listen to shows anytime on Apple Podcasts and Google Play. Children today face all kinds of new threats. Many of them are found on the Internet. But one persistent threat can be almost anywhere. On the Internet, on social media, in the school lunchroom, on the playground. For some kids, life is made miserable by a bully. But sometimes growing up doesn't stop it. One survey has found that nearly a third of adults have been bullied, most often at work. What happens very often is child bullies grow up into adult bullies, and particularly if it's effective for them. And that's not always the case, obviously. So I think that, you know, some children who are bullies, they have an awakening, they have a, you know, a reckoning, and they realize what their bad behavior did to the poor target. And sometimes they'll change their behavior. But very often, if a bully is successful in getting what he or she wants, then they'll persist into adulthood. You know, it's like sort of a strategy that works, and they use it when they're adults. That's Dr. Ron Riggio, professor of psychology and leadership at Claremont McKenna College. And he says adult bullies want the same thing as child bullies do. There's some good evidence that bullying often comes from the person's own sense of inadequacy. So the bully sometimes feels inadequate in some ways and maybe has low self-esteem. And then by putting down others or tormenting other people, it makes them feel better, at least temporarily. A lot of times in bullying, we see that the person is very egocentric and doesn't really often care about the impact on other people. So narcissists, for example, are often bullies. When self-esteem is at a place where it's fragile or it's not nearly as strong as it should be, especially for an adult, that's when you're going to start to see these kinds of behaviors. People who are insecure, people who are vying for a place that they probably know they don't earn or deserve, but will bully to get it. Dr. Charles Sophie is an osteopathic psychiatrist and medical director of the Los Angeles County Department of Children and Family Services. It is someone who feels powerless and is trying to find more power, and they usually go toward the weaker pieces of their life or people in their life, and they go that route for the power, and they play these people, bully them, push the buttons, and put them into a place where then they feel powerful because that other person who happens to be maybe weaker or not as loud or as strong or doesn't seem as strong as they fall apart. But it's all about power. Now, when bullying, 
61% of the bullies are bosses, okay? So it's easy to be a bully when you're a boss. But co-workers, a full third of all bullies and perpetrators are co-workers. That's social psychologist Dr. Gary Namey, director of the Workplace Bullying Institute. And he says not only are most bullies bosses, most of them are also men. But not always. Women suffer terribly in bullying situations when their bully's a woman. 31% of all the perpetrators are women, and women target women in the vast majority. I think it's 60, 63% is our last statistic. Bullies pick out targets who they perceive as weaker. Reggio says it's often someone who's somehow different. So it's very common for a child or an adult with a disability to be bullied. People who are in the underrepresented community, so LGBT individuals, both children and youth, are often bullied. You know, in the workplace, there may be bullying of anybody who's sort of different, right? So an ethnic minority worker in a male-dominated workplace, they may pick on a woman. Older workers, you know, disabled workers. In the workplace, though, many of those individuals are in the protected groups. And so you can have some legal recourse. However, few targets think of their legal options if they're available. Many targets don't even realize they're being bullied. Another teacher that I know was being picked on by the principal and being singled out for ridicule. And I said to that teacher, do you realize this sounds like bullying behavior? And I think once that teacher realized that she was being bullied by the principal, it changed her perception of things. Because before that, she was just sort of feeling maybe I'm inadequate in some way or maybe I'm underperforming. That's one reason Reggio believes a lot more adults are bullied than we know. Most common is the belittling. In the workplace, you see a lot of bullying that takes place where there's criticism of the person's work, criticism of them as a person, as a worker, as an individual. You know, you see bullying, for example, with neighbors, you sometimes see bullying where somebody keeps persisting to complain about something and usually something trivial or putting someone down. So typically it's verbal. And often, Sophie says, it's behind your back. It's funny because it's not the kind you would necessarily see on a playground between two kids. You're going to see subtle ways where there's power plays being made. There's things behind your back that are done or said. There are sabotages set up. Sometimes they're more overt, but a lot of times and more often they're covert. So they're going to be subtle things that not necessarily you can pick up on, but you feel the ramifications of them and the smarting after. If that goes on and on, the toll can be much more than some people imagine. This can be extremely stressful for people. You know, in the workplace, it's very often the case that people quit their jobs. Sometimes they quit their jobs, they don't have alternatives. You know, psychologically, the experience of stress, it can lead to other health problems and health concerns. Depression is very common in the targets of bullies. That trickles into all different kinds of symptoms, from sleep changes to appetite changes, inability to maybe work, mood changes, anxiety levels, all kinds of ways. And if you have an underlying mental health issue to begin with, you're only adding to it and triggering it. If you don't, you could have one now 
that you didn't have before that now starts to interfere with your ability to function on a daily basis. People who see someone else get bullied, for example, your friend at the office who knows it's going on, may suffer from what's called the bystander effect when they witness bullying, but they don't intervene. More than half of people in the workplace say they've witnessed bullying of another person. So it's very, very common. And why do people not intervene? Well, the obvious reason, one obvious reason, is that they fear that the bully will turn on them. Doesn't always the case because often the bully is picking a particular target. The other reason is that people just don't see it as bullying. You know, this idea of just not wanting to get involved. Namie says people who see someone else being bullied may also have health effects coming from apprehensive anxiety. They also will dread coming to work. They will also throw up on the way to work. They will sit longer in their car and listen to the radio just a little bit longer before they shut it all down and come to their cubicle. They also suffer a higher level of depression. And the principal emotions in bullying are shame for the target, but also guilt for the witnesses. Guilt over knowing they should have perhaps intervened when they had the chance in the immediacy of the moment. Guilt over not standing by the person and at least giving them support quietly in private, although that's about the only kind of support that is given so as to not be detected. And having the strength to not go side with the bully. The survey found that bullying is a little more accepted than it used to be. But Reggio says the calling out of rampant sexual harassment and assault in many workplaces may have some carryover to make other forms of bullying less acceptable. Reggio says it is a form of bullying. It's about power. But Namie says there are significant differences. In sexual harassment, the person has the law behind them. There are both state and federal laws that have compelled policies. And companies, if they ignore sexual harassment, are foolish. They face additional charges of reckless indifference if they were to go on and not investigate or not take the charge seriously. With bullying, the absence of the law means the employers are not compelled to make this part of this, the bullying, the generalized harassment, if you will, the status-blind harassment. They're not required to make that part of any policy, and darn few American employers do it. In other countries, bullying itself is illegal, but not here, so that leaves targets with few alternatives. If you are bullied and you take the report to, let's say, HR, Human Resources, which people foolishly do, thinking that they might gain support there, what you're going to find is HR, representing the employer at that point, doesn't have to do a darn thing. They don't have to be responsive to your complaint. In fact, what they do is it triggers retaliation in every case. They will call the manager saying, you've got a troublesome person here. What do you want to do about it? And on and on and on. It's just amazing. So that tends to delegitimize that person and then cause retaliation. Namie says it shouldn't be up to targets to end bullying. Too often, he says, they're nice people who can't thwart it and turn the other cheek instead. So how can we fix it? Namie says, take some lessons from another problem. The phenomenon that is most analogous to bullying is domestic violence. And for too long, we have blamed the victim. We've diminished her perspective and her needs. We've said, well, if it was so bad, why didn't she just leave? Not understanding all of the pressures, the lies that she had to exist under and everything else. So long story short, targets 
cannot fix it themselves. So let's get out of there. There are three groups that can do something. Coworkers can offer support if they would just get over their irrational fear that they're so worried they're going to be the next target that they do nothing. The do-nothingness, the famous bystander effect, can be overcome by one or two witnesses, one or two co-workers who says, let's go tell her that this has happened to us too. She feels so alone. And then you go, and then she realizes she's not alone, which is very validating. And then as a co-worker group with unity, you come up with ways to manipulate the bully and control the bully. The second group who could do something is employers. But Namie says they won't do anything until the third group acts, lawmakers. Again, much like domestic violence. For a hundred years, women were not believed in, and we said we didn't want to pierce the family veil. Law enforcement couldn't get the women to charge the uh, batterer, and their hands were tied, and society said, oh, to hell with them. But finally, the movement got it criminalized. And once it was criminalized, the law enforcement had tools. Namie says anti-workplace bullying bills have been introduced into the legislatures of a majority of states, but only a few have enacted anything, so employers are free to support bullying. He says it's part of a management style that they don't want to interfere with. I'm Reed Pence. Coming up, older dads and young kids, when Radio Health Journal continues. Holiday celebrations are often joyous occasions, but they can be challenging for the millions of people living with Alzheimer's disease and those who care for them. The hustle and bustle of the holidays can be stressful for those with Alzheimer's, and changes in the daily routine, large gatherings, and noisy environments can create extra anxiety. Monica Marino, Senior Director of Care and Support at the Alzheimer's Association, has some tips to make the holidays enjoyable. First, plan ahead. Prepare the host for special needs, such as a quiet room for the person to rest. If you're hosting, let guests know what to expect before they arrive. Since crosstalk and multiple conversations can be challenging for people living with Alzheimer's, try engaging the person one-on-one or in smaller groups and keep them involved in the celebrations. Marino also suggests experimenting with new traditions. For example, if evening confusion and agitation are a problem, turn your holiday dinner into a holiday lunch or brunch. Find out more tips at ALZ.org. According to the American Cancer Society, prostate cancer is one of the leading causes of cancer deaths in American men. That's why for men with prostate cancer at risk of progressing, monitoring for signs of progression is critical. I'm Dr. Chris Pazanka, a urologist at Associated Medical Professionals in New York who has been paid by Janssen Biotech as a spokesperson. Men with prostate cancer whose disease progresses after treatments like surgery or radiation may receive hormone treatment to lower testosterone called androgen deprivation therapy or ADT. However, for certain men, prostate cancer can further progress despite this treatment. Prostate cancer that is not spread to other parts of the body and no longer responds to a medical or surgical treatment that lowers testosterone, or ADT, is called non-metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer, or NMCRPC. Men with NMCRPC are at risk for the disease spreading to other parts of the body. Erlita, also known as apalutamide, is a prescription medicine used to treat prostate cancer that is not spread to other parts of the body 
and no longer responds to a medical or surgical treatment that lowers testosterone. In a clinical study, the median time men on Erlita lived without their prostate cancer spreading was 40.5 months versus 16.2 months. Erlita is not for use in women. Use birth control during and for three months after treatment with Erlita because it can cause harm or death to an unborn baby. Erlita may cause serious side effects including heart disease, falls and fractures, and possible risk of seizure. Call your doctor right away if you experience chest pains, sudden loss of consciousness, or a seizure, and go to the nearest emergency room if you get chest pain or discomfort. The most common side effects were fatigue, joint pain, rash, decreased appetite, weight loss, high blood pressure, hot flash, and diarrhea. Tell your doctor if you get a rash. These are not all the possible side effects. Tell your doctor about your medical history of heart disease, seizures, stroke, brain injury, or tumor, and all your medical conditions. If you're concerned about your prostate cancer spreading, ask your doctor about Erlita. For more information, please see our ad in Popular Mechanics. Call 1-877-546-3586 or visit www.erlita.com. Thank you for listening to Radio Health Journal, a production of MediaTracks Communications. If you enjoyed this broadcast, please support our show by subscribing, sharing it with a friend, and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. You can find more Radio Health Journal stories about health, science, and technology on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and RadioHealthJournal.net. Also, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Radio Health Journal. Coming up next week on Radio Health Journal. Do parents have authority to make medical decisions for their children? Do states have an authority to do things to the bodies of citizens in the name of public health? Bridging the vax-anti-vax divide. It's about values rather than science. Then, affluenza. Does wealth sometimes warp the morals of rich kids? If your parents are not willing to punish you and not letting anybody else give you any consequences, of course you're going to learn that you're above the law. All that and more on Radio Health Journal.